Welcome to Behave Intelligently, an uncensored exploration of behavior in the workplace, life, and the larger world. Behave Intelligently is co-hosted by fellow behavioral enthusiasts, Jay Johnson and Mark Garrison, and produced by the amazingly talented team at Coes Creative Group. Thank you for joining this week's edition, where we're going to talk about persuasion, the tools of influence continued. So we got into some of the tools of influence, ran out of time in our last podcast. We covered liking and social proof, and uh, we even talked a little bit about some of the other uh, some of the other influence tools that I think you know reciprocity and and the golden rule. This week we're going to take a look at one, and I want to ask you a question, Mark. Have you ever found yourself where maybe you said yes to something and then that turned into another yes and then that turned into another yes and then all of a sudden you found yourself doing way more than you would have expected to say yes to in the first place outside of stuff at work hmm yeah probably i would say that's happened but probably more often it would be i said yes to something and then i sat there kind of wondering if i made the right decision or what was going to happen next. You know, um, trying to think a scenario that pops into my head is, can you hold my spot in line? You know, sure. I just need to grab something. Sure. And then it's like, okay, five minutes have passed, 10 minutes, like, like how long am I legit supposed <laughs> to hold this spot? And, or are they ever returning? Uh, what if I end up getting through the line and, now that person is out of luck. Like I've had that probably more often. Well, and I, I love that. That's a great example of the influence tool that we'll talk about next, which is commitment and consistency. And it's really interesting because psychologically speaking, humans have this sort of innate desire to stay consistent with themselves. So the public persona that we create, we generally try to stay consistent with it. Uh, because otherwise it causes us cognitive dissonance. So if you think that you're, if you have a public identity or a personal identity of being an environmentalist and then accidentally one day you end up littering, well, that's going to create a cognitive dissonance in you and it's going to actually create psychological pain. Uh, so there's this really interesting aspect of commitment and consistency that human beings are very, very much influenced by. Now, does that apply the same to, um, you know, we see it in the news all the time. So we'll use a, a celebrity who is an environmental activist, but flies on a private jet. Now, they might not have that conflict, but what about their fans or supporters? Does that kind of follow the same lines? Yeah, that's where you also start to see people making justifications. Oh, well, I do this and I do this and I do this because they don't want to be inconsistent with their personal brand or their personal identity. So yeah, we try our best to remain consistent, but humans are complex creatures and oftentimes we don't uh, succeed in staying consistent across all of our different behavioral patterns, as, as we well know. You know, commitment is one of those things where once people are committed to something, or especially if they make a public commitment to something, they have this sort of urge or this pull to them that kind of keeps them 
along that path. If you've ever played poker, for example, uh, you know what the word pot committed is. Is I've, I've, I've chased this far too long. I'm just going to keep going. Now I'll bluff because you don't want to pull out because there's the fear of missing out uh, or the fear of losing it all. So you just keep going and going and going until essentially you hit the end of the cycle. So commitment is probably a influence that casinos or gambling type organizations really play into uh, keeping their, uh, we'll call them customers there and being active. Yeah. So there's all kinds of cognitive biases that come into play there. You know, the hot hand fallacy, we could do an entire show on fallacies, I think, but you know, the hot hand fallacy, the gambler's fallacy, um, you know, all of those things where people essentially make poor choices because they are, quote, pot committed. I thought there was a really interesting study that uh, Robert Cialdini, as we had mentioned in the previous episode on persuasion, uh, he had done some different studies sociologically. And one of the studies that was super interesting that he cites is one of, can you watch my stuff? And it's almost like what you had just said at the beginning of our episode is somebody asking you to hold their spot in line. In this study, it was super fascinating. They had a researcher come and set their stuff down on a beach. And half of the time that researcher would ask people that were sitting nearby, hey, I'm gonna run down to the water and take a quick dip. Can you watch my stuff? The other half of the time he didn't, the, the researcher didn't ask for a commitment. It was interesting to see the results when they sent another researcher to come by and steal the stuff that was then laid in front of them. So, uh, you know, in half of these situations, somebody had made a commitment. Yeah, I'll watch your stuff, man. Go ahead and go down to the beach. And the other ones, they didn't make it. Where they didn't make a commitment, only 20% of the people actually said something or tried to stop. And it was very obvious. They made it extremely obvious that this person did not, that stuff didn't belong to them. They were picking it up and walking down the beach. Only 20% of the time, somebody actually tried to stop them. However, interestingly enough, when the person on the beach made a commitment, yeah, I'll watch your stuff, even if it was just one of those simple things, 95% of them tried to stop and sometimes even physically tried to stop the person that was stealing the stuff off of the beach. And I thought that was so fascinating. Like, this is a complete stranger. It's an offhand request. Hey, will you watch my stuff? Yeah, sure. I'll watch your stuff. And then 95% of the people acted in order to protect that person's stuff. And I would guess most of the time when people said, yeah, I'll watch your stuff, they're saying yes because they're assuming nothing is going to happen. What are the chances of something occurring? And so I'm really not committing to much. And then kind of had that uh-oh moment. <laughs> something is happening. And it, what do I do? Can you imagine being the person that had, hey, I watched your stuff. It went that way. Right. <laughs> Somebody stole it. You know, you don't want to be that person. You've made a commitment. Like, I thought you said you were going to watch my stuff. Yeah. Hey, I snapped <laughs> Even a though picture a, of the guy taking it. So here you yeah. go. Even though it's a complete stranger, that, that compulsion to remain consistent, that compulsion to act on their commitment was really kind of manifested in there. I, th I thought that was something that was just super interesting. And those numbers, those stats are just staggering how, how much that little, yeah, I'll watch it, impacted the degree of that person following up. 
in, in actually yeah. doing it. Oh yeah. I mean, you're talking about a 75% increase from one test group to the other on that. But it's really interesting, I think, how big brands or marketing people or salespeople use this commitment consistency principle and say something like, do you remember the old uh, Tickle Me Elmo dolls and the Tickle Me Elmo craze of like 2000s? I vaguely, I vaguely recall that. I, I didn't have one. I would think I was a little old at the time, but I remember hearing it in the news. So my sister was of the age of, of possibly getting a Tickle Me Elmo. And it wasn't until way later that I started studying persuasion that I learned about this. But the toy manufacturers, they are ruthless savages when it comes to persuasion. So what they do is right around the October timeframe, they start flooding the market with commercials for some kind of product product. In this case, it was the Tickle Me Elmo doll. And they have these commercials on early morning cartoons and every kid wants one. They drive up this amazing demand and then they short the market. So the parents, they go out and they're trying to find a Tickle Me Elmo and you couldn't find one anywhere. And there was like, there was stories, news stories of moms getting into fist fights over the last Tickle Me Elmo on the shelf. It, it seems so illogical, but they're literally because these, oh, well, you know, maybe Santa will bring it for you. And they make this commitment inside of themselves that they're going to get that Tickle Me Elmo doll for their kids. Well, they go and it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. So what do you do? Well, you start to feel guilty. Oh, I, I, the one thing he asked for, the one thing she asked for, and I can't get it. So then they buy a bunch of extra stuff that they probably didn't need or that they wouldn't have bought anyways to make that guilt go away. Then... Shortly after Christmas, you walk into the store with your gift cards, and what do they have? Thousands of the product, thousands of Tickle Me Elmos down every single aisle. There's just magically, they're all there. And the parent then goes and purchases the thing that they promised to get their child for Christmas. Why did the toy companies do this? Because they learned that their sales were the worst in January and February. So they drive up demand for a product, short the market of the product, get people to buy a whole bunch of guilt presents because they couldn't achieve that, and then release that thing that they've made that three-month commitment to in their worst sales cycle. It's a brilliant strategy. You know, Savage. It is. And I would say... My parents were really smart then because my brother and I were both born in January. So if we didn't get the thing for Christmas, it was always, well, maybe <laughs> you're going to get it for your birthday. And, yeah. you know, so there's plenty of time for those items to come back on the shelves and they would be able to get it. So, you know, growing up, I can't think of anything that I really wanted that I didn't get for like Christmas or my birthday and it, or my brother got, you know, and so maybe it's just because with an early January birthday and a late January birthday between my brother and I, those items came back in in time that my parents could get them. They had a, they had a good safety valve for you. <laughs> yeah. So everybody out there that's thinking about having kids, keep this in mind in terms of timing. That'll work out well for you. First two weeks of January and you've got a built-in saving grace. That's pretty funny. So, you know, we see, we see commitment used actually, you know, You've probably seen this in the political world as well. Commitments used often um, 
there's a really great study of where they went around and they asked uh, homeowners if they would put this giant six by, you know, six foot by three foot billboard in their front yard supporting a cause or a candidate. And, you know, of course, most people are like, no, absolutely not. That's that's ridiculous. And then they used a different strategy in other neighborhoods where they would say, well, you put the sticker in your window. Oh, you put the sticker in your window. Will you put this tiny sign on your door? Oh, you put that on your door. Will you put uh, this small thing in your yard? And literally created this um, this commitment of yes, 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 and kind of an incremental persuasion till they got to the final ask of this giant billboard, and it was like something like thirty percent more people said yes. Uh, when they use that strategy, then it was just if it was the cold ask for the first thing as the first ask. So and I thought I, that was interesting. I'll have to say I'm probably guilty of that in the political space. Um, <laughs> and I didn't do it knowing that there was a philosophy or strategy behind it. Uh, it just happened to be it was working for me. Uh, you know, hey, well, would you be willing to endorse the person? Can we put your name on the website or on on the you know, mail piece. Oh, sure, would you take a sign? That's oh, simple and free. Yeah, yeah. Would you volunteer and kind of just kept increasing and increasing? And could we get you to come out once, you know, just to go uh, knock doors with us? And then, oh, would you be willing to take the day off of work to work all day on elections, you know, in the middle of November in Michigan, uh, you know, where the weather is probably not the most ideal to be standing outside or something? <laughs> And so, yeah, you know, I, I never really thought about it that way, but uh, yep, guilty. Yeah, so, you know, getting people to kind of make that commitment and then once they do, this is a great tip for fundraisers. If you are asking somebody that has given in the past or has shown generosity to your organization in the past, use that as sort of a priming technique and say, you know, we remember your generosity from the past year and just how committed you were to our cause. Could we count on your support again? Uh, that triggers that kind of sense of consistency, that sense of value towards that consistency. That can be a really powerful way to uh, create an influential message in order to in increase your, uh, your fundraising efforts. And I would even imagine if you wanted to don't start by asking money but ask for just their name of a support you know would you be a supporter of ours can we put you on our list of supporters and once you get that yes then you can go and do an incremental yes for money or volunteerism or something like that so you're getting that series of yes because sometimes if some organization came to me and said hey you know would you make a donation my first response might be no but hey, would can we count you as a supporter? Well, yeah, sure. You know, there's no no harm in that. You're just putting my name on a list. Hey, would you be willing right. to volunteer, you know, an hour here or there for this? Yeah, sure, why not? You know, so that might be a good strategy as well for for those uh, fundraising organizations. You brought that up, and actually, it reminds me of a case study for the Boy Scouts. They were they were pretty savage in their uh, one of their fundraising schemes. What they would do is they would ask people, "Hey, would you donate one hundred and fifty dollars and come to our, you know, the the ball or the conference that we're running?" And people, of course, would be like, "Ah, you know, sorry, I can't." 
but they wanted to, you know, I'd love to be able to support, but I, I just can't do that at that time. Well, no worries. We're also selling candy bars. So, you know, candy bars are a dollar a piece. Would you be willing to buy one of those? Well, they, they've already said, oh, I wish I could help. I wish I could support, but I just can't do $150. Well, now I'm giving you a second option that's a dollar per candy bar. Not only did they sell more uh, to more people, but they also sold way more candy bars. Like, yeah, sure. Here's five bucks because the, you know, the disparity between paying 150 versus the $5 worth of candy bars, uh, they felt like they were walking away with the deal, but really they were tapping into that consistency and that even a little bit of reciprocity, like, Hey, I'll forgive you of your sins of not being able to give us 150 if you, you know, maybe support us here on this $5 candy bar purchase. Now, would that also be considered priming? Yeah, I mean, we can look at that as a couple of things. So, you know, there's some people that say, hey, start with a small purchase and then move up to the larger purchase. There's other people that say, start with the largest ask and then retreat back to something that's more reasonable. Show the, show the $700 purse if you want to sell the $300 purse that's of similar value, um, but just a lot less expensive. I think both of those strategies are pretty effective in terms of influence, it really is going to depend on who the receiver is. But yeah, I mean, if I can get a commitment from you to say, hey, I'm here to buy a purse and all I, you know, if we can agree on a price or if we can get to the right price range for you, would you walk out of here with the purse? Well, yeah, absolutely. I've been primed. I've made a commitment. Now, the only thing that we have to negotiate is how much are you willing to spend? Now, I know one of our next tools that we're going to talk about is authority. How does authority come into play? Is that something that is similar to liking? Because I might like uh, the, the figurehead or the speaker that might be promoting it. Or is authority different? Uh, it can be. So authority is really... If we go back to, you know, Aristotle and we look at ethos, pathos, and logos, you know, the three pillars of persuasion in the ancient Greeks time, authority is really an argument to credibility. That credibility ethos can come from a number of different things. It can come from liking that you have credibility with me because I like you. But it can also come from simple things like if we, you know, when we talked about uh, the parking ticket attendant who came and was wearing a vest and had the parking tickets and I went to the ATM and got them my money and just handed it over. If you missed that one, check out the ethics episode uh, where we, where I tell you how I got owned a little bit on that one. But um you know, the very fact that there was a vest and these parking tickets, that was an appeal to credibility and to authority. So you can look at things like, for example, celebrity endorsements, great example of authority. You know, uh, if, if it's good enough for Tiger Woods, well, it, you know, it's definitely going to improve my game. Come on, let's be, let's be real. You know, just because Tiger does it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to swing that club the same way. So authority is really kind of an appeal to credibility. Okay, so liking and authority are slightly different, but they could have some overlap. Also within the authority space, 
It could be uh, their position within an organization that gives them authority to kind of fall in line or how in, in the uh, slightly shadier practice, how they might look or appear uh, is the case with the attendant in the uh, not paid for parking lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if you think about it, if you uh, if you've ever heard things like four out of five dentists approve, okay, well, yeah, there's a little social proof built into there because a number, you know, a, a quantifiable number, but at the same time, what dentists, where did they study? What was their, you know, what was their field of specialty when they studied? How good of a dentist are they? Do they have a lot of patients? Do they publish research? Those are all questions that you just sort of gloss over because, oh, well, four out of five dentists, I know what a dentist is. That means that they must be, uh, this must be a credible product. So when we look at authority, it's really about a mental shortcut that if somebody in a doctor's coat tells us to do something and take two of these and call me in the morning, that we're not questioning every aspect of what that ask is. And, and sometimes people do, right? Like if you tell a child, it's bedtime, why? Because I'm the parent and I said so. I've heard that argument so many times. That is an argument to authority. <laughs> you have no choice here. I am the authority and you will do as I say. Um, sometimes it comes off a little more subtly though. Now, I've seen you train on this topic and you always gave an example of a pretty famous case study that I think, you know, the listeners might enjoy and understanding what happened and how authority was used. Yeah, so that's the Milgram experiments. And if you've not heard the Milgram experiments or, or never heard of it, I encourage you to look it up. It really tells a lot about our, our psychological states and how influenced we are. And, and Milgram was somebody that decided they wanted to understand better how people of a nation could contribute to genocide or to uh, you know atrocities that were levied against the Jewish population in Germany. And like, how could some people who, uh, you know, be supportive of these practices, you know, was it a, were they able to just not acknowledge it or pretend like it wasn't going on? So he set up an experiment and the experiment was really interesting is they had a researcher that they put in a doctor's lab coat. They had another researcher who was behind a uh, essentially like a blackened mirror. You couldn't see through it. And then they had a subject and they put the subject in the seat and said, this is a learning experiment. You're gonna, we're gonna ask questions to the person that's behind this blackened mirror. If they get the question wrong, you have to administer a electric shock, you know, a small shock. So there's this board that they could administer the shock when they got it wrong. Now, Interesting, if you ever, if you do look this up, you can actually find like the audio transcripts of the person behind the, now, mind you, nobody was actually getting an electric shock. It was a researcher back there that was screaming and yelling. Uh, but the first question's asked, they get it right. The second question's asked, they get it right. The third question's asked, they get it wrong. And uh, the researcher, the doctor says, okay, please administer, you know, uh, this, this level of shock. Bzz. And the person behind the thing goes, ow. And then the next one is, 
please administer this level shock and it goes up and it escalates and they wanted to see what they were actually studying was how far could they get somebody to turn the dial up and to the point where the person on the other side was i i, I have a heart condition I, I i please this is really and and the doctor would and the subject would be like i i don't know if i should or i don't and the doctor would just calmly say i need you to continue the experiment everything will be okay please administer the next level of shock please don't disrupt the experiment i need you to deliver the next level of shock and it was it was remarkable and just awful to see how many people were turning it up the dial also had a warning label that it you know shocks delivered above this might be fatal and to the point where the person behind the screen screen eventually just stopped saying anything so they didn't answer and they would say please administer another level of shock there's no answer to the question. They're not even getting it wrong. And people were still turning the dial up. Not everybody. Some people got up, walked away. Some people said, no, I can't do this. But uh, IRB and uh, research protocols probably would never let an experiment happen like this again. Right. But it was really interesting and telling that the authority of the doctor saying, I need you to continue this experiment was enough to get people to administer shocks that were potentially lethal to the person that was behind there. They were crying in their subject seat and still administering these shocks because of authority. And may not have, he may not have even been a real doctor, right? He just could be someone wearing a lab coat, but because he looked the part, played the part, maybe even said he was a doctor, but the person may not have checked credentials or verified or anything like that. And these folks still just kept cranking the dial up and, and even going past the little warning sign is, is uh, kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the transcripts. If you want to have some haunting dreams, I'm telling you, you can hear it and it's just, it's incredible, but I, it does illustrate sort of the dark side of influence. You know, the commitment, commitment can lead to things like uh, not abandoning your ideas towards cultism or towards, uh, you know, an, an idea that you just hold so strongly, but you're committed to it. Even if it's proven wrong, you do face saving authority. You can really fall victim to being uh, pushed. That's why I think it's really important to talk about these subjects to help educate people how am I being influenced by messages? How am I using these messages to, you know, I can use these messages in a way of having Tiger Woods swing the Nike golf club. That's probably far more innocent, but there is definitely a dark side to all of these psychological influence tools. And that's why, that's why we started this whole conversation with ethics and intentionality. Don't use this for the dark side. So let's, let's lighten it up a little bit on the topic of authority. We see it all the time if you watch TV or different products in the store as seen on TV. Oh, yeah. As seen on TV. It must be true. And Abraham Lincoln said that if you saw it on social media, you got to follow it and believe it, right? So we are, you know, if there's a celebrity or if there is an influencer or somebody that demonstrates something to us, you know, whether it's a product, a brand, an identity, uh, a new diet, whatever that is, because of their celebrity status, 
we tend to believe or we tend to be more persuaded by the fact that, well, that must be something that's legit or well-researched or documented or well thought about. I'd like to try that too. You know, that's and, a huge influence. You know, I wonder, I was a big fan of uh, the TV show Newsroom where they, they talked about, uh, it, it was all about creating a, a news broadcast and challenged a little bit with mainstream media uh, in terms of is the news being ethical when they try to just break news too quick without all of the details or all of the facts. And I guess, you know, a lot of people maybe watch news and just assume everything they see is, is, is true and, you know, it's being, you know, uh, provided by an authority. But if you're not an avid follower, you might see the follow-up news story later that day or the next day that says, oh, we need to clarify, here's what happened or here's what changed. So is there an ethical issue or ethical challenge in there for platforms like that to be a little more clear in, in what they're promoting or saying? I know that's a battle that I think we're seeing right now with social media. Yeah, I would say that there is an ethical obligation to that. And I think like if you studied journalism or if you've gone through journalistic ethics, they would agree that there is an ethics to journalistic and mass media presentation. I, I think the problem is, is that you have this, you know, this economic system where being first it has its privileges and has its advantages. So if I break the news story first, everyone tends to follow suit. The problem with that is, is that people tend to believe the very first message that they hear, especially if it's something crisis, especially if it's something traumatic, that first message is, is, is the most sticky, especially on something new. Um, it gives context, it gives uh, context to any additional information that comes from it later is compared against that initial message. So if you're not accurate on that initial message, you could be doing harm to a larger population. If you're doing that in service to the drive, you know, our fire drive to be first competitive or the drive to acquire, there's some questionable, I, I would encourage them to consider the ethics of, is this worth it uh, from a ethical standpoint? The answer will probably be no, but we're still driven to acquire in many cases, unfortunately. So going on to our next topic and, and kind of ties in because, uh, you know, some of that breaking news at the moment is scarce. And so if someone wants to jump on that and be the first in line. Uh, let's talk a little bit about scarcity. Yeah, scarcity is one of my absolute favorite influence tools because how often it's enacted on us. It's it's one of those things where if you've ever gone to uh, if you've ever gone to a presentation, you're like, for the first five people only, you'll get this if you sign up right this minute. First five people only. Basically, it's scarcity is all about fear of missing out. It's all about creating a urgency. So this is a really useful tool to create urgency or to create impulsivity in a buyer or in a negotiator is if I walk out of this room, this deal's over. That's scarcity. You're telling me I have to make a decision or I have to act right now. Otherwise I'm gonna potentially lose whatever 
uh, you know, whatever opportunity exists. And I've used that a lot with negotiating, like, hey, this is what I want. Oh, that's not possible. Okay, fine. That I mean, this is my offer. I'm leaving. If you don't want to take it, that's fine. A lot of times you get to the door and they're like, well, hey, wait a second. Let's let's talk. Maybe we can work something out, um, you know, because it's a tactic that has worked for me in the past. Yeah. You know me in, in car sales. I'm pretty ruthless. It's not, it's not particularly fair. Uh, so I'm kind of the same way, but you know, it, it, let's use the car sales context. A lot of times you'll hear, hey, this deal is only good until the end of the month. At the end of this month, we don't know what they're going to do with the next round of, you know, the next round of A plan, X plan, Z plan, G plan, F plan, whatever plan it is. You know, we don't know what new inventory they're going to be releasing to us. So if you want this, you've got to sign on a dotted line probably today, you know, and, and they'll create energy for today only. We're willing to offer you this rate. That is something that you can absolutely fight back against by saying, for today only, I'm walking out. And tomorrow, we'll see if we can get back to the space that we want to in this negotiation. Because guess what? There's a thousand and a half car dealers, and I will find one that will find exactly what I'm looking for to be commensurate with you know, their vision of sales. But yeah, it's super interesting to me how much we fear losing something. It's actually an interesting cognitive bias. We are more afraid to lose something than we are. We're driven to avoid loss more than we are driven to gain. And I think that that's a really interesting dichotomy between our defend drive, our earth drive, and our fire drive to acquire. You know, and one thing that we see all the time this time of year uh, during the month of March, and, and I would even say I think it goes into maybe early April, advertisements for McDonald's Shamrock Shake. <laughs> yeah and i think you start seeing that even right after the first of the year but you know it's it's available for limited time only come oh, and yeah. get it be first in line you know i even see people on social media posting like i was the first one in line at mcdonald's on the day that it was released yeah mcdonald's brilliantly uses this strategy in a number of different ways the monopoly game people will literally just wait not even they're not even huge mcdonald's fans but when the monopoly game comes out for a limited time you can play monopoly by getting you know a supersized fry and a supersized shake and a super no wonder uh you know no wonder we're unhealthy as a culture mcdonald's is great with this concept of scarcity they also have the, the oh this is this is one of my favorites the best advertisement ever the ever elusive McRib, which honestly, I've, I don't think I've ever had a McRib sandwich because just the very concept actually grosses me out. But brilliant marketing. I know somebody who used to literally buy 15 to 20 McRib sandwiches and keep them in their freezer just to make sure that they had a good stash that would get them through the season until the next time around when the ever elusive McRib would show up again. Yeah, I would have to say I've never eaten one. Um, kind of grosses me out as well. Uh, <laughs> and I know I know someone as well. And I don't think it's the same person that, I mean, would go to McDonald's every day during McRib season, we'll call it, get McRibs, buy them for office, people at the office, you know, people he would work with, buy them, freeze them, store them. And even to a point where he was trying to recreate his own to have some during the off season of McRib. 
That's uh, that's commitment right there. That is commitment and consistency. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I never understood it, but yeah, I mean, he bought into that scarcity factor. That's for sure. You know, another really good one for scarcity, and I thought that this is a, a really interesting model, the LuLaRoe. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's like, uh, it, it's well, it's now not just women's, but it was a women's line of fashion. And essentially, they have patterned, uh, patterned pants, patterned dresses, patterned this, that, and the other thing. And they would only create 100 of, the, of a specific pattern. So now you're talking about a nationwide distribution. They would send out, uh, you know, this, if you were a LuLaRoe distributor, you would get a whole series of different things. Everything was going to be different because there's only a hundred of each of the patterns. So you didn't get like 10 of one pattern. You'd get one or two or whatever. Well, if you were buying and you were interested in that brand and you saw a pattern that you really, really liked, you knew it was, it was almost one of a kind. You're not going to find it again. So you buy it right now. Otherwise, that patterns, you, you're, it's gone. So it's such an interesting sales pitch to say, there's only 100 of these. Collector's items, all of those things really tap into that kind of psychological concept of scarcity. And I would even imagine, uh, at least here in the United States, one of the most popular scarcity days uh, for deals is the day after the U.S. Thanksgiving Day what we call Black Friday, Black Friday shopping, where there's yep. all these doorbuster deals and, you know, limited quantities, only 20, where people are camped out in line, wrapped around a building uh, in late November, uh, you know, in, in states where, you know, it's it's freezing cold and, and whatever it might be just to get that that super great deal. And, you know, I have to admit, I'm guilty of having done that in the past. <laughs> um, you know, stayed out there for three hours or whatever in line, or I think even you might even see that with, you know, big movie theater, uh, movie uh, show releases at theaters or um, concert tickets, things like that, where it's, it's a scarce item and people are willing to sit there and camp out for it and, and wait in line. Yeah, you know, anytime that resources or opportunities are scarce, people tend to behave in a way that's it's highly motivated, that's highly urgent, and that's much more uh, impulsive, you know, and, and if you get that opportunity, you feel special because, hey, I waited for this, I served for this, I got this, and, and it's just a very powerful behavioral tool to inspire action. So that's one of the reasons I love scarcity simultaneously that I dislike scarcity because I too fall victim to it very, very often. Like, Ooh, if I walk out of here, that might not be there when I come back, I better buy it now. And of course my fireside impulsivity jumps into, to play there. So, um, you know, part of the reason that we talk about these influence tools is obviously they're very effective in use in marketing and sales. And that's obviously one of the things that we do. But I think it's also really to kind of educate people about why maybe they make these decisions or why they're uh, compelled to purchase something when they're in the store or why a certain advertisement might be very, very persuasive to them or and some advertisements not persuasive to you. So hopefully you've gotten a little bit out of that. And I would even say, you know, over our discussion on influence tools and persuasion, we focused a lot on uh, businesses and consumers, but 
these influence tools also really apply to relationships with people, friendships, uh, significant others, people you're dating, whatever it might be. And that's probably a whole other series of episodes that we could dive into and, and discuss. But influence tools are out there. They're being used. And even those of us who know them, train on them, speak on them, and, and just overall teach others about them, we still fall victim to them as well. No one is safe. We are all human in one way or another, right? So I want to say thank you for tuning into this week's and the last two parts of the Persuasion episodes. We really hope that you enjoyed those. And if you did, would you mind please rating, reviewing, or subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Let us know what you think about these episodes and email us your thoughts at podcast at coeuscreativegroup.com. If you want to learn more about Coeus Creative Group or Persuasion, visit our website or connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in next time when we talk more about behaving intelligently.